There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to episode 59 of Climactic. I'm Mark Spencer. And while today I'm not your host, I do have the pleasure of introducing today's episode. Hosted by collective member Bronwyn Gresham, this is an interview with Matt Wicking. Matt has been one of our most frequently requested guests. Matt is a musician, an environment and sustainability consultant, a facilitator, an MC. He's done a lot in this community, but he's also experienced downtimes, burnout, fatigue, and he's brave enough to open up about that with Bronwyn today. And this is easily one of my favorite episodes of the show, for insightfulness, relatability, and usefulness. You're going to find something in here that's relevant to you. I had the pleasure of being the sound engineer for this episode, recorded at the Docklands Library, and it was great to be able to watch Matt and Bronwyn through the glass of the control room, having this really in-depth chat, and to be able to work the board for them. So thanks for letting me be your sound guy, Bronwyn, that was a lot of fun. But while I've got the chance here to talk about maybe some more technical things, I thought I'd give a very quick overview of what the collective is up to, and maybe for some of you joining us who are quite new to the show, what we're all about. So Climactic is not really just one show. It's the product of a collective of four podcasters. Bronwyn, Georgia, Maxine, and myself. And we've also got some great people helping us, without which we could not pull this off. But us four hosts are definitely people who all want to do podcasts. I think we all want to have at least one of our own shows. So for the last year, Climactic's been a way to band together and put out something consistently while we find our feet. And it's been amazing the response we've had. Since last April, the number of you tuning in to listen has skyrocketed. We went from a couple thousand downloads a month to 17,000. And this month, May, we crossed 19,000. So thank you so much, all of you, for listening. And this is showing us that, yes, people out there do want to hear stories from the climate community. And it's been such an honor to bring them to you. But let's say you know of a great story, a local community group doing great work an individual in your community who is so inspiring. Or maybe there's something happening in your local area that's really positive or we could learn a valuable lesson from. Well, then we would love you to help us share that story. Climactic is an open platform. We're happy to take recordings sent in from the community, from across Australia, the South Pacific, and the world, about what it means to be part of the climate community and how we can all do our bit sustainably. And that's been our mission for the last year, to be an open platform to kind of experiment out here in the open, and things are starting to take shape. I don't think it's going to be too far in the future that we're announcing more shows. The Climactic will grow out of one feed into a network, and that means we're going to have space for more hosts, more contributors, more stories. We're going to need you. And it's so great to work with a local group to tell their story, but at the end of the day, that's only worth their time if people are listening. And so I've got a favor to ask. If you're enjoying Climactic, could you tell a friend about us? Or two? Or even three? That would be amazing. Our archive of episodes is already pretty big. 
and I'm pretty sure you're going to find something interesting in there for almost anyone you know. So if you could help us spread the word about what we're doing, we'd be so grateful. And subscribing to the show in your podcast app, or leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, that's really helpful as well. So thanks for joining us, and for indulging me in this little update about what we're up to. And now on with the interview between Bronwyn and guest Matt Wicking. Well, hello, Climactic friends, and welcome to this episode. My name is Bronwyn, and I'll be your host for today. It's a pretty cloudy, cool day outside, and we're sitting in the recording studio at Docklands Library in Melbourne. And I discovered today that it's actually the first wooden building of this size in over 100 years. So we're on this very precious land, and on behalf of our guests today and Climactic, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the people of the Kulin Nation, and the many vast lands that you may be listening on today, and to pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. I am absolutely delighted to introduce to you our guest for today, artist, advocate, facilitator, storyteller, Matt Wicking. He's the founder of Cloudcatcher, an organisation that harnesses creativity and collaboration to help others engage in meaningful conversations, move through obstacles and get things done. Sounds pretty good. He's also the lead singer with the General Assembly. Now, I do believe in the importance of celebrating each other's accomplishments and in the spirit of this and perhaps the risk of embarrassing Matt just a little, I'd like to take this opportunity to share some of the things that Matt has accomplished as a human being. He has completed the Future Makers Fellowship at the Centre for Sustainability Leadership. In fact, he's mentored a few of our other climactic hosts. He was a greenie in residence at Art House. He's been a communications advisor at the Bureau of Meteorology, facilitator of environmental education programs with Monash Sustainable Development Institute, and many, many years experience as a professional sustainability consultant. What a life. Matt Wicking, welcome. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Bronwyn. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I was wondering, firstly, if you could tell listeners what Cloudcatcher is and where the name came from, because it was a very um, inspiring name, and I was just really interested in the origins. Yeah, thank you. I like the name. Um, I like coming up with names for things, too. So, Cloudcatcher is my professional practice, or one part of my professional practice, I suppose. And the name comes from something that I've realized over the last half a dozen years of freelance facilitation work that I think is a thing that I'm quite good at and, and that I think is really important in in groups. And that is helping to weave together some of the stuff that sits in the air between people Mm -hmm. and share it back, reflect it back, help people to move through emotional difficulties, maybe take a whole lot of ideas that have been shared in a group and summarise them in a concise way back to that group to help them make sense of where they're at and how they might move forward. So it's a, it's a name that cloud catching is, you know, about grasping something that's ungraspable, I suppose, at least for a moment and using it to move forward. Yeah, and, and kind of invisible almost as well and, and then through togetherness or coming together it becomes visible. Yeah, yeah. So I like the idea that it's sort of a form of magic in a way mm. and facilitation is not magic. It's a craft and it's something you learn and, and get better at as you as you grow and practice it. But mm. there is a another element to it I think that is part of a facilitator's personality and nature and mm. natural sensitivity to others and to the world around them that, that helps you do it well or, or otherwise. Mm, um, and so for myself and the other people I work with as part of Cloudcatcher, which is, it's kind of 
you know, for the last five years I've been working freelance on my own mm. and I decided that it was time to gather together with some of the people who I've really enjoyed collaborating with occasionally and formalise that a little bit. Mm. So it's not a business as such. We're not, I don't have employees, but I have partners who I mm. draw in on projects or who um, we sit down and chat about what would we like to do together, what do we, what's needed in the world and mm. how I might we be able to do that together. So how have you found that shift then from solo practice into partnership? It's been good. It's been really good. So far, so far, so good. It's pretty new. So I started Cloudcatcher in 2019. Okay. It's a fresh thing. Yep. But in a way, it's not so fresh. It's just an extension or a, a solidifying of something that was sort of happening anyway. And so the people who I've tapped on the shoulder or had chats with and said, hey, would you be up for, you know, being officially part of my gang or this gang that we are? have all sort of said, yeah, great, let's see what we might do together. And it mm. felt very natural. Right. Yeah. And we're going to talk a little bit, hopefully, today, how um, creativity and being an artist has supported you and influenced your voice within climate change and the various elements that contribute towards climate change. But perhaps we'll dive deeply. Is that okay? Sure. Yeah, great. go on. Well, look, <laughs> a, a few weeks ago, I viewed your performance, Lost at Sea, and in this, you told a very mesmerizing and compelling emotional story that speaks to the heart of some seriously perplexing human behavior around denial and delay. And it's, I feel like it's one of the questions that baffles the minds of many hmm. who are trying very hard to work through climate change. And it's something that I get asked a lot as a psychologist, which is why aren't more people alarmed? Mm-hmm. You know, why, why aren't we responding at the urgency and the scale that is required? And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your journey to create Lost at Sea and how you kind of grapple that question. Mm -hmm. So Lost at Sea is a a talk that I've been giving for the last five or six years. It's evolved over that time, but essentially it's a a fictional story. um, And it's a fictional story that contains in it a whole lot of truths, I think. Mm. And I use poetry and story, metaphor and song as part of the fabric of it and I developed it because well <laughs> I could I could explain it in a bunch of different ways but the reality <laughs> is I got asked to speak at an arts event oh, yeah. at a next wave festival mm-hmm. event and on environment climate change and I thought to myself well I can't get up and talk to this audience in the way that I might normally to a corporate audience or to a you know group of activists so, uh, there's going to be an expectation that maybe i be a bit creative and Do I thought, something arty. <laughs> yeah, I guess so yeah <laughs> um, because I was being asked as an artist as a musician to come and speak I wasn't mm. being asked as a sustainability consultant or specialist which is you know the work that I was doing professionally at the time and so it just ch- challenged me a little bit I think and shifted me out of my usual ways of approaching this stuff and it really got me asking that question of what might engage us better than stats and facts and graphs because that uh, approach of flooding people with good information about what's happening mm. has only got us so far. Mm. It's got us to a pretty good awareness of what's happening. Mm. And we've got this rich, detailed kind of um, clarity about the mess we're in, which is useful to mm. a point. But if it doesn't connect with people's hearts, mm. then it doesn't get us all the way. Because it doesn't lead to action and mm. it doesn't lead to connection and empowerment and inspiration it it can lead to all sorts of other things and so I was I guess inspired to try thinking in a different way and so the story is about a ship that's out at sea and in trouble 
and the captain's nowhere to be seen and I am feeling a sense of alarm and I go and try and find answers. And that very much felt like where I was at in my life. I'd been a sustainability consultant for about a decade, working to help businesses and people in all sorts of parts of the community to green their practice and to be more connected to the environment and their communities. But I felt this like, uh, I think in your profession, in psychology, they call it cognitive dissonance, the absurd kind of meeting point of what you think makes sense with something that doesn't gel with it. And I was feeling that more and more strongly and it really was starting to tear at me. And so I guess it made sense to think about a a ship that was in trouble but where the alarm wasn't sounding even though I felt like it should be. Mm. And so that's the start of the story. Mm. And and that's, the I guess, a journey that since then I've been continually going on or continually progressing on, which is to try and understand better why we aren't acting when it seems so obvious. Mm. You know, a question that often gets asked in these sorts of conversations and these sorts Mm. of interviews Mm. is, why are you passionate about climate change or Mm. why are you interested in the environment? Mm. And the question that I'm much more interested in is why aren't we all interested and engaged with this thing? Yeah. Um, I know some people are, but why, why isn't, how have we become so disconnected? Yeah. That, um, to ask a question like why is the, um, health and wellbeing of the planet and our species of interest to you? seems kind of crazy. Like that's a dumb question. Why, why is shopping for the latest iPhone more interesting mm, than mm. Uh, one of um, my psychology colleagues uh, from Psychology for a Safe Climate has called it the syndrome of independence from nature. Sins. Yeah, wow. Independence from nature. So, or it, it, so the, And the syndrome is a, that it, there's a perception. Is mm, that right? That, that we're kind of, we're feeling quite disconnected from yeah. and um, separate from rather than the reality or the eco-mind, which is the interconnection yeah. of of all of us and the, the rich tapestry of life absolutely that we are a part of. And there are, you know, us in the sort of environmental space, in inverted commas, environmentalists will often point to others and say, oh, you, you're, you're climate change deniers mm. or your politicians aren't taking the action that you should be taking. Mm. You're um, ignoring this thing that's happening. I think that that's understandable that we feel that way. Mm. But if we honestly put a mirror in front of ourselves and look back at ourselves and try and understand what are the stories that we're telling ourselves every day Mm. that are contributing to the world that we're creating. Mm. And the reality is that climate change deniers are such a small proportion of the population that if the massive wave of millions of people, the vast majority of the population that knew that climate change was happening, that cared and wanted to do something about it, did something about it, Mm. then the deniers would be washed away in that wave Mm. in a moment. They wouldn't matter and they don't. Or maybe even washed in. Washed in, yeah, maybe. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And frankly, either either way, you know, they can go which way they will. We should care about them less is what I think. And it's our focus on others and on our, on, you know, they should be doing this and Mm. that it's sort of like we've become, and I I guess I hinted this or suggest this in in the story in Lost at Sea, that we've become spectators Mm. at best commentators Mm. on what's happening to us in our lives around Mm. us and there's another step which is active participants Mm. in the beautiful richness of life and i would like to see us move back towards that and frankly if we're saying deniers need to stop denying and they're they're ruining everything then that is commentating and you'd be much better Mm. to call up your mum or your neighbor or your friend and Mm. say I really care about this thing. Let's mm. do something together to mm. help move in the positive direction. Mm. Or can I 
be a shoulder for you to lean on, cry on, because I know you're struggling with climate change grief or whatever it is. There's a, (laughs) I don't use sporting analogies very often, but there's one that my dad (laughs) used to talk and say, which was like, um, play the ball, not the person. Yes. So keep your eye on the ball is, an, is yeah. another way of putting it. But yeah. it's really like don't focus focus on the game itself, on yes. the structures and the systems and the rules and the things that we really want to change. Yes. And I think that when we were talking before we were in preparing for this interview, you were speaking about your particular journey into becoming interested in climate change and involved in as a sustainability consultant and you – you're a bit self-critically, so it's not a very interesting journey, <laughs> but <laughs> there was a few moments and one of them in particular that was a turning point, you might say, when you realised the depth of the problem and mm. that it was similar to that sporting analogy, not so much the people to blame, but the, the, something about the system or the balls or the way we're throwing the balls, <laughs> so to speak. Yep. And that compelled you to that moment to take a more radical or immediate change in the course of your life. Mm. Could you could you maybe share that story a little yeah, bit, sure. listeners? Yeah, that story. Uh, it, I hadn't. I, I don't think until you asked about it and we started chatting the other day, just in preparation for this conversation. I hadn't really thought about it in quite this way as a turning point, but I realise now that it was. And I was working at the time. Some context that's useful, perhaps. I was working at the time as a sustainability advisor inside a small not-for-profit super fund in Victoria. And I was helping to make that organization more sustainable. And my work wasn't on the investment stuff. It was more on how the business worked, how we reported, to kind of be an example of a, a, an organization that might function differently. And it was a beautiful job. And I, there was a really progressive CEO running the company. And it was, I was really lucky to have that as my first professional experience in this space. Mm. But there was work being done on the investments and sustainability. And that was really important work as well. More so, you could say, because there's a lot of influence in the money we invest. Of course. But I remember... At, it was at a certain point towards the end of my time there and perhaps I didn't know it was towards the end of my time there, but it worked <laughs> out that way. And I was watching a news report about the end of year sales. It was Boxing Day sales, I think. Mm. And there were masses of people flooding into department stores, sort of fighting each other for bargains. Mm. We've all seen that footage. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah, it's horrible. And it's a really, um, it just feels like, you know, I think one of the myths we t- we tell ourselves as, as humans is that we pretend we're not animals and that we actually are. And that's a really beautiful thing. That we're <laughs> yeah. part of the yeah. broader natural world. But when we really I see, see the us, herd getting into that shopping centre. Yeah, you can really <laughs> see us as kind of herd animals <laughs> and fighting for thing over, you know, things yeah. with each other when you see that footage. Um, and it's a sign, I suppose, of consumerism gone mad mm. and, you know, I, what I re- but the the most interesting bit for me was that when I saw those people fighting over those um you know things that they perceived to be bargains and and just the the waste of everything that it entailed of of time and energy and emotion and mm. goods and you know nature's um, resources I don't like to use that word but you know all mm. of that stuff um when it when the reporter who was reporting on the story said basically afterwards that this the Boxing Day sales had been a bumper year and that that was a really good thing for the economy mm. and that that was going to mean more jobs for people and more money in the in the you know coffers for the government to mm. spend and so on, I felt, again, I guess that dissonance mm. of like how can that be a good thing? And if that is a good thing, which I know – that which I know is a sign of us 
pulling out the rug from under ourselves yeah. and destroying the yeah. very thing that we depend on, this yeah. beautiful um, globe ecosystem, then there's something wrong with the equation. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like you were sensing your inner disgust mm-hmm. for the behaviour, mm. yet you were being told externally this is this is the way we want things to be mm. and then, you know, accessing that very kind of um, core knowing that yes. actually, no, no, that that's doesn't sit well with me. Yeah, that's right. It didn't feel right. And I knew at the same time that working for a super fund that the way those organisations work is that if uh, you give a super fund your retirement savings, then they invest it in businesses. They want it to grow over time so it becomes your retirement nest mm. egg and that's a larger amount of money in the future. Mm. That growth idea is really, really, really problematic mm. um, on a finite planet. Yeah. And, you know, there's that saying that you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. Mm. And I guess I saw how these Boxing Day sales and the frenzy over that stuff and that, that sort of mm. full-on consumerism yeah. was actually – part of this growth economy working well, which was part of people having retirement savings, mm. which again didn't work. Mm. And so it, it got me, I guess, to see or to have a glimpse at the system. Mm. And the system isn't something, systems aren't things that we can always see. You're mm. often just in the mm. day-to-day play. Mm. But um, you get opportunities to get a glimpse of systems, I think. And this was one chance where I could see, ah, oh, this thing's much bigger and more wound in together than I'd realised. Yep. Environmental issues aren't environmental issues at all. They are mm. social issues, economic issues, mm. issues of power. That, I think, idea has been inspiring me and threading through my work since then. And as someone who is trying to stay awake to all of this dissonance, because it's very activating emotionally, it does generate such intense you know, from rage to disgust to indifference, you know, that there's so much um, to contend with emotionally. Mm. We were speaking a little bit about how, you know, in terms of being able to stay connected with the systems, kind of the disease of the system, so to speak, that every now and then it can begin to wear us down. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to share a little bit about your your own personal journey with, um, with fatigue and burnout mm. um, and... I guess how you began to notice that something was that that you were struggling as a, an individual, and a little bit about how you found your way through that. Yeah, cool. I'm I'm still finding my way through it, but I'm happy to share for sure. Uh, you mentioned the line you said before was really nice. I thought, which was the um, being awake to the dissonance, mm. and um, I think that is something that I've tried really hard to do, mm. and it's something that my music expresses quite particularly mm. that it, it is a music is a beautiful space where you can hold competing ideas mm. together and feelings mm. and so being awake to that dissonance has been a part of my professional work in supporting others as a facilitator with the center for sustainability leadership as mm. a songwriter and singer in that band and also someone who is passionate about getting past the bullshit and the noise and getting to the signal and to the clear truth of things as best mm. as maybe we can yeah so two years ago, I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue, mm. uh, ME. And actually yesterday was Millions Missing Day, which is ME Awareness Day, which is okay. interesting timing. I just realised that wow. n- now in chatting to you. ME is a myalgic encephalomyelitis, is a really um, common issue and, and there's a lot of people who, who suffer with it. Mm. One of the problems is that it's really underfunded and under understood, mm. not well understood, mm. partly because when people get it, 
they're wiped out. They don't have energy. They're often bed bound and can't yeah. work and be in the public sphere. So they and can't so we don't be see seen. Them. Yeah. yeah. So the the protests that happen around that, are, you know, about getting visibility and hopefully getting funding and action to find ways to yeah. deal with this this disorder, this illness. It's it's such an interesting observation, isn't it? Because often when there's some kind of underfunding of some chronic illness or struggle, cancer, mm. etc., that there it's usually led by those experiencing it. That mm. there's kind of that drive and that, that momentum for advocacy. That's part of the problem, isn't it? Yeah, that that's right. You know that the person experiencing it is is wiped out. Yeah, that's right. The people yeah. who experience it worst, for sure. And I, you know, I've been lucky. I, I can't. I mine was diagnosed very early. Um, by my doctor, which is great. And so I'm, and I've been doing all the things I can to yeah. get better. Yeah. It's not uh, entirely understood, but there's growing body of knowledge about how to work through it. Mm. The most interesting thing perhaps pertaining to this conversation mm. for me is that once I had that illness, I could look back a decade, two decades before, perhaps for all of my life and see the ways in which I might've um, been, uh, setting myself up to Mm. be more, um, I guess, uh, possible to get something like that. More vulnerable. More vulnerable maybe. Yeah, Yeah, perhaps that's right. Mm. Um, It's a hard thing to talk about. I paused then and and struggled for the word because people with chronic fatigue with ME have been struggling for a very long time against a um, a, a public sort of impression that it's just Mm. laziness or that it's in your mind or Mm. it's a psychological disorder and it doesn't have a real biological or there's um, something that aspect. you've done to bring it That's on. That's right. You brought like it onto you yourself. Haven't looked after yourself That's well right. enough. You haven't or tried hard you haven't, enough. Exactly. Yeah, all of that. The myths. There's a lot of stigma attached to it compared to other. There is. There myths. is. So I'm treading a really fine line right now about, and I, all I can really talk about is myself, my experience, and my of course um, my understanding of this thing th- through how I'm experiencing it. But I know for others they would talk about it differently. Yeah. But I can see that, you know, there were times I struggled with depression and anxiety over the years. There are my ways of processing environmental ecological grief mm. I think have contributed to me setting myself up in a way to not be able to feel my emotions mm. as deeply and richly as I would like to mm. and as is healthy. And when you bottle up and block and don't allow your emotions to live, mm. your system starts to run into trouble. Mm. Not a healthy way to be. And I know that for me that's part of what's got me here. Is that partly because there's so much to do there's so many various avenues of engagement that the emotional processing or expression just gets kind of on a daily basis or a moment-to-moment basis kind of we have to push it aside a little Mm. in order to keep contributing I suppose so we all do that to a certain extent don't we yeah I think another part of it though is that the emotions that I was feeling didn't haven't felt for a long time to be valid or Mm. legitimate because as we talked about before, there's this alarming thing going on, mm. but there's no alarm sounding. Yeah. And so if I react like there's an alarming thing going on, yeah. then everyone else is like, well, you know, what's going on? Yeah. You can only talk in, in so heightened a way about the environmental crisis before you start to sound shrill yeah. and like you're um, ranting and, and have lost the plot. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, feeling and expressing the real actual emotion of what it feels like to be a human alive at this time feels like it's not really enabled by a society 
it's not kind of what we might say externally validated. Uh-huh, and I, I can uh-huh. attest to that myself. I've got a lot of friends who are on board with climate change, but there is always at the back of your mind, am I, am I going to be seen as mm. um, making a big deal out of this or overly sensitive or, you know, there's that critiquing that goes on that's um, not my own. That's, yes. you know, the society that's kind of contributed to that story and that totally. kind of comes back to the stories that we tell each other and permission to speak to intense emotion yeah and you know you bring it up at a dinner party and it kills the mood of course it does the, the event or it or creates a debate yeah or creates you know tension heated. and conflict and yeah, yeah that's right yeah it, and we don't all some of us avoid that conflict and it's quite common yeah so all of that carrying that can be really challenging mm. um and i know there are groups like you work with like psychology for a safe climate who mm. work around Mm. that space and are Mm. starting to realise that this is a real problem. Mm. And I don't know if I would have got chronic fatigue if it wasn't for the spaces I've been working in and the things that I'm focusing on. Um, I'm really glad that I'm focusing on those things. Mm. Um, When I first got diagnosed, a fatigue specialist I went and saw said to me, Matt, I think you're, given where you're at, given your early diagnosis and so on, and that there aren't other factors around this for you, like, um, you know, unhealthy gut, challenges which can often be common and things that are hard to solve Mm. he said i think you'll probably make a complete recovery Mm. so that was good news he said i think in a couple of years or or when you when you do he said i think you'll possibly even look back and be glad this happened Mm. and he said it might be too soon for me to say that Uh, Mm -hmm. and i said yeah mate it's too soon um (laughs) right now but I'll, i'll hold that and i'm starting to get to a point where i can understand what he meant okay it's very hard to say that you're glad that something really should happen to you yeah that a chronic debilitating health disorder that has meant so much that I'm missing out on and and may never get to do, I don't know, is good for you. But I I know that what it has done is helped me to deepen in a whole bunch of ways my connection to the natural world and what that gives me in terms of my well-being and Mm. spiritual like sense of self Mm. is profoundly enhanced. Mm. My understanding of systems and how they work is profoundly enhanced. Great. Because when we look at systems like our economic and political systems that are creating environmental destruction, we can also look at our own personal behaviour. So if you want Mm. to change your behaviour to do something like flossing or (laughs) um, responding more nicely to your partner when they're they're angry at you or whatever, whatever it is, there'll be parts of you that don't want to change. There'll be parts of you that want to keep things as they are. Mm. That's the status quo. Mm. That's the same concept as the status quo in our political system that's Clive Palmer that's people who are doing very well making a lot of money out of destroying the conditions for life on Mm. earth and we've got those same we have status quo elements to our identity as well yeah absolutely and then if I go down to the next level which is that kind of deep connection with the resonant life itself Mm. then I can feel that there are through a lot of meditation and mindfulness practice which has been really good for my fatigue giving myself space and peace and silence mm. and slowness and ease has helped to sort of open up an understanding and awareness of all the stuff that I was doing to hold on to and try and control things happening around me, mm. to try and grasp and grip and make things turn out a certain way or be conscious of how it might appear to others and all that sort of stuff that we all do, but that's even sort of at the level below visible behavior it's like really subtle embodied emotional work that we're doing now it's time for climactic community corner where we play voice messages sent to us on facebook we're opening up this space for the community to share events news thoughts feelings all sorts 
If you've got a message to share, just send it to us at Climactic Show on Facebook or hello at climactic.fm. Hi there, my name's Jessica and I just work in an early learning centre. I just had a quick question. I just wanted to know how would you implement sustainability practices as well as learning experiences, I guess, for children from ages zero to five. Thank you. Hey, Mark here. I just want to say thanks to my friend Jess for sending in a message to be on a podcast before she'd ever listened to a podcast. You did great, Jess. That was perfect. Just to add a little bit on what Jess is saying, I'd love for people to be able to ask questions in Community Corner, and I'd love for you to be able to answer them with your own voice. You can, of course, send us a message on Facebook. You can send us an email to hello at climactic.fm. You can also send us a voice message on either of those platforms, and we'll play it right here on Community Corner. So does anyone out there have any ideas or experiences they can share with Jess about how to add sustainability thinking to a kindergarten or preschool? Are there activities you can think of for the kids appropriate for ages 0 to 5? I'd love to hear your thoughts, and I'm sure out there in the community, there's a bunch of collective wisdom. And I'd love for you to be able to share that with Jess and with everyone else. And if you've got a question please feel free to send it in. Thank you. So what I, the level I'm working on to heal my chronic fatigue is to work with that stuff mm. and to work with the status quo of my emotional landscape and the status quo of my um, identity and the ways my neuro you know, linguistic mm. programming works and mm. all that sort of stuff. Mm. And for me, that's, if you, that's the same. So... Mm. I'm working with power yeah. and changing myself. I'm trying to shift power. Yeah. And in my climate change and the biodiversity and extinction and environmental work, I'm trying to shift power out there, there in the so world as well. There are so many parallels. So many parallels. And so I'm learning so much about as I learn how to shift power for myself, I'm also understanding better how I might do that out in the world, yeah. which is sort of the next thing I guess I'm moving towards, I think. What an incredible strength and resource to begin to build. And just the reality of you sitting with the tensions and the contrast, like that mm. there is something there's some kind of meaning or purpose within something that could be quite traumatic, mm-hmm. connecting with the different parts of ourselves. In in terms of the support that you've had to guide and go through that process, what what's around you? Have you has it involved connecting with other groups or mm-hmm. a therapist or reading? You know, how have you resourced that inner work? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I feel like it's great because I think a lot of us in this space need to find support for ourselves Mm. and that's a really important part of the work Mm. one core part of support is myself to be resilient means to be able to self-soothe and to Mm. be able to listen to yourself and know what you need and be able to respond to that Mm. without sort of just running roughshod over it Mm -hmm. and so I'm that's a first place um then you know friends and family have been a um great support of course as well Mm. again with me chronic fatigue it's challenging because it it often pulls you out of social situations. It means you don't have the energy to interact with others. And so you lose that, which is so necessary. And again, the natural world, I've found that when I'm out in nature, I, I feel less. Um, the fatigue sometimes comes on as like jet lag or seasickness mm. or like a, a woozy, foggy headedness. Um, mm. Things that I might have pride in, like intellectual ability or ability with people, like just fades away. And I don't have those things anymore. Oh. I can't. You know, I feel like I'm, I've aged 50 years in a moment, wow. which is really 
obviously very challenging and yeah. confronting. Yeah. Um, so, th- so all that, of that is why that support is necessary of yeah. friends and of, you know, yeah. spaces you can go like the n- more than human natural world to. And in those moments, good. because other people might have moments around panic or despair yeah. or confusion, what's the anchor? What mm-hmm. grounds you? I don't know. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I know I am. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what grounds me. I guess I've got a good sense of myself. Mm. I'm, I feel really lucky, you know, like uh, the reality is that I've, for some people who get a, you know, disorder like this, you might not have the support that mm. someone uh, that I have or there's lots of privilege that I've had in my life that mm. puts me in an okay position. But if I was a single mum of four kids or something mm. and I got, I don't know what the hell I would, how I would have got better so far, that would be really mm. full on. So there's a lot of luck there. And I guess others around supporting me. And I do have professional support as well. Yes, a counsellor, yes, a fatigue specialist, yes, a, you know, all sorts of other But there was something support. about the value that you place on your own self, mm-hmm. that you value your own well-being that is kind of like what enables yeah, you to right. turn towards self-soothe mm-hmm. and to actually try to listen to what is it that I need in this moment. And yeah. like, where did you get that that from? I guess it's a, it feels like a chance to take my own medicine in a way because um, for six years r- running the Centre for Sustainability Leadership Fellowship Program, I would talk to the group about looking after yourself and self-care through this challenging work and... Um, I talk about, you know, on an airplane, you need to put the oxygen mask on yourself mm. before you help those around you. Yeah. It's a really simple idea, but one that makes a lot of sense. So I really value that idea mm. and I'm being given an opportunity to practice it. Yeah. And I know that if I'm not at my best, then I'm just no good to anyone. Yeah. I'm no good to my partner, to my community, to the other non-human species that mm. might need people like us to speak mm. up mm. and to say something and to act because I just can't. So I feel like my this chronic fatigue is just an example of, you know, we all get different sorts of levels of burnout and yeah. um, and challenge to our health. And for me, I think I'm having a really, I'm going through and hopefully coming out of, fingers crossed at the moment, I'm feeling pretty good, an example of what that means and how to work through it. Mm. And yeah, definitely mm. I'm finding that prioritising health and well-being mm. like first mm. and not just like first but first and probably second and third as well yep. you know like just <laughs> do it do it do it do it do it and yeah. put, let, move other things aside yeah and d- stop kidding ourselves that this thing is urgent or that thing is urgent and yeah. is. if you yeah. if you really don't wholly Priority. beautifully prioritize and ground this yeah. self of yours then yeah. The rest is really tough. So it's kind of, it began as an intellectual kind of, I know that mm. self-care is important. I'm, I'm kind of preaching it almost. And yeah. now it's quite an embodied yes. practice. Yes. And I can imagine letting go of any stories around selfishness or feeling mm. guilty for taking time out or feeling guilty for prioritizing oneself and yep. shifting that into the, just the, the, you know, including ourselves in that circle of compassion that we're all valued and worthy and needing of this um, TLC. Yeah, that's a really nice Mm. way of putting it. And it means letting go of other stories as well about Mm. um, being able to do anything at any time and, you know, being able to always be there for others who need me. Mm. I've got to be there for myself first Mm. and then I can do that. Mm. Now, I'm conscious of our time Mm. and we're thinking about resources and inner resources Mm. and valuing self-care being one of them. And just speaking to you before this interview, another uh, resource that I noticed you had was this capacity not to blame the individual. You said something like, it's not the individual that upsets you, it's a system we're caught in. So you're not upset at the people. We're all mm-hmm. wrapped up in this. No mm-hmm. one is outside of this stuff. 
And I feel like that's kind of this bringing this common humanity component into it. And um, I was interested in in how you developed that Hmm. mentality or who influenced that mentality or Mm. was it just something that you came to? I'm not sure. I know there are lots of, (laughs) it's a great question. Yeah, that is a really important idea to me for sure. Mm. And uh, I think it's undeniable actually, you know, that it's partly by, I guess, a bit of that reflective work of saying, what role do I have in this? And can I really see myself as blameless and other other people as the evil Mm. um, people in this play? And I know that for, say, environmental communications and activism, we often want to have a, someone to point target. to and say, yeah, they're the target. Mm. Um, it might be mining companies or politicians or whatever. I get the usefulness of that. Mm. I don't think at the same time we want to forget our own complicity or wrapped upness in everything that's happening. Because mm. the moment we do that is, I think that becomes like an excuse for some of the things I was talking about before, like commentating on something that's happening rather than acting Mm. for it Mm. with others Mm. and so I guess it's there's a humility in it it can lead to some sense of grief or feeling stuck because you feel like well if I'm in this thing I need to change then how do I change it Mm. but that feels like a more honest conversation to me and it explains significantly I think why we have so much trouble shifting these systems and the way things are yeah yeah, it definitely, because everything that we do mm. on a daily basis is having an impact and mm. it's so easy to get swept up into feeling grief and guilt mm. around that and c- confusion about, you know, how to make the biggest impact as an individual as opposed to kind of... Collectively. Yeah, it's kind of holding both. Yeah. Um, Bill McKibben, the environmental campaigner, yeah. talks about um, his nice quote, which is, um, the best thing an individual can do right now is to be less of an individual, mm. which I really like. I love that. And there's also a group called the Dark Mountain Project in the UK, which I found really interesting. And they're doing work to sort of unearth the stories that we tell about ourselves. Mm. And I think that this this is one of the stories we tell ourselves that's not true. It's a myth yeah. that we're somehow good and ev- and others are evil and that yeah. there's this fight going on that we're not sort of enmeshed in. Yeah, and the problem with that is when we really look deep, we realise that we've got those both parts mm. and that, that can be very uncomfortable right. realisation at yeah. first. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to be wrapping up soon, but I wanted to invite if there's anything left unsaid or any, anything that mm. you really wanted to um, share today or speak to given this wonderful opportunity. Yeah, th- there's something that in we started this conversation talking about my story lost at sea, hmm. and I guess I encourage people to have a have a watch. I'd love to hear people's thoughts on that hmm. and ways that they feel that that might be useful as a tool for activism because that's really what that story is ultimately for. And we'll pop the link in our show notes. Yeah, great. Um, but there's one point that I make in that that I thought might be nice to share, which is that I say after r- reciting a poem that we need at this time to be kind to each other. And I, I think that maybe that's like a really simple idea, but n- not just on its own. So we need to be kind to each other, but we also need to be less polite to these systems that keep us small. Mm. And I think that we sometimes get confused about where to put our anger and mm. our energy mm. and we throw it at each other. Mm. And I don't think that helps because it mm. pushes us into our separate sides. Mm. It um, keeps us in our bubbles with mm. people who agree with us mm. and it doesn't help move things forward in positive ways. Mm. I think when we talk like that though, people say, oh, but we have to be strong and forceful. And I completely agree with that. Mm. I just, I guess, want to express that I, I think the right place for that 
forcefulness mm. is at these systems mm. that are working to keep us small. Mm. And there are people who are playing roles in that, mm. but we need to save them from themselves and save them from these systems as mm. well. Mm. And, you know, po- politicians and heads of major parties in Australia and around the world, frankly, are really good examples of that. Mm. Um, if we see them as all-powerful, nasty people who are ruining the world, mm. that's quite disempowering, I think. Mm. Where, as a collective very powerful Mm. and we have the ability to shift things so that those people are saved from the terrible situation they find themselves in Mm. and probably unaware of it Mm. Uh, and that that's the I think really important work to do. Absolutely and when I think about the people who inspire me the most it's those who speak truth to something Mm -hmm. with a certain level of moral conviction Mm. and with kindness and through the lens of love yeah yeah like that's that's what attracts me yes and um so thank you i think it's it's such an intuitive message and it can seem quite simple yes Um, doing it's another thing doing it is another thing (laughs) and um you know our brains are hardwired to be calmed through kindness Mm -hmm. and we're facing something that's really challenging and we kind of need to find our anchors and mm. calmness with mm. as the world's shaking around us. So. Yeah, we're going to need more and more of that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Matt, for your time today, your Thank generosity, you. your spirit. It's been um, such a – I feel like we could talk for another few <laughs> hours, but we have a time limit here on our studio booking. Uh, is there anything that we would like else we would like to end with? I don't have anything planned to end. Okay. Well, that could be it. Maybe we'll invite <laughs> you back onto the show. That if you would, would be, be willing to come back on of and course, we can anytime. keep this conversation going. Yeah, for sure. Love Wonderful. To. Thank you. Thank you. I found a tower on a hill above a lonely town. Beneath the tower was a door into a lonely room. Inside the room there was a beacon. Sending signals to the night Inside the beacon was a book With my initials on the cover Inside the cover Were the contents of my life From birth to death And as I opened it and read See of voices filled Take up all the threads and weave a 
This has been a production of Climactic, a podcast collective helping local communities tell their extraordinary stories. It's our mission to help elevate the voices of the everyday heroes we're surrounded by and inspire, sustain, and motivate the climate community. We love working with local environmental groups, individuals, nonprofits, and social enterprises. So if you've got a story to tell, please just get in touch. The Climactic Collective is Mark Spencer, Rich Bowden, Maxine Baisley, Georgia Scheel, and Bronwyn Gresham. Our producer is Hazel Fidikara. Our digital design is by Rose Fidikara. Our Climactic theme is produced by Greg Grassi, and our logo designed by Abigail Hawkins. We're also pleased to feature the music of the General Assembly. Thank you for listening to Climactic, the podcast for our climactic times. The Climactic Collective. Collective.